it's for you and for us to grow together and for us to, to know God better together. Okay? We'll start with the word of prayer, and then we'll open up and get into the text. Lord, thank you for everyone here to today, this morning. God, this is a difficult text. And there are many other texts similar to it in the scriptures where you address the reality that you are creator and everything originates from you. God, help us to not be angry if we hear something new today that we've never heard before from another teacher or pastor. God, help us to be gracious and help us to think. God, give us minds to understand and uh, give us understanding with what your words say and what just the Bible truly reveals to us with the, every single word that's given from your hand through the Apostle Paul and the other men who wrote down your holy words from a long time ago. God, help us to realize that who you are in your presence is just as powerful and just as real today as it was for the men and women back then. That you would be real to us, that our desires, our mind would be saturated on your greatness, how awesome you are, and that we would be humble before you, like many of our songs today, talking about your throne room, talking about your holiness, that we would have a reverential awe, a fearful spirit, and at the same time, a spirit that knows the joy of your salvation and the joy of the mercy and the grace that you give. Lord, help everyone here today to be changed, to be a better Christian, to represent you well, to want Jesus Christ above everything else in this world and to delay, begin to lay more things aside that are worldly, that cling to us or that saturate our minds. <coughs> God, help us to leave those things aside seeing that Jesus is greater and that serving the King is so much more important and being about the Master's business is what we want to be about. God, help us to have the Word be so ingrained in our minds that we would bleed the Bible when we speak when we act, when we think. Not this world's ideas and thoughts, but yours from the scriptures. Amen. 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 We have a guest this morning, Dr. Kim Anderson. He's a chaplain of the Gideons and Dakotas. Well, welcome. Thank you. Speaking today, too. Um, Wish you were here last week and for the last several months, because today is going to be a very difficult thing, um, a very difficult passage. It's not easy to um, go where the words themselves want us to go with our thinking. It's, by some, believed to be one of the most hard, deliberate texts on this topic in the Bible, and it is. It's the most direct one, and there's other verses that tie into it that talk about the same thing. So, we'll get started. We'll do a little review here in Romans 9, the preceding verses, and get on to our verse 21. Romans 9. Starting in verse um, 9, we'll 
we'll begin reading, and I'll kind of just do a little bit of a summary, and then we'll launch into what we have on the board. So this is the flow of thought. This is the author's continued flow of thought as this idea continues to build and get more and more serious or defined. It's more and more detailed of the author's thoughts here on this, on this subject. So verse 9. This is the word of promise, God's promise. At this time I will come. So God is the one who's coming. And Sarah shall have a son. Sarah was a 90-year-old woman who could not have children. So God's promise is displaying his power. That Sarah is going to have a baby. And this is a miraculous thing. And it's based upon God's power and God's promise. And God's going to fulfill his word. God has the power. Verse 10. Not only this, but there was Rebecca also. So the second step on the patriarchal line. Rebecca, who married Isaac, when she conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, that's really important. The author is pointing that out. It has nothing to do with anything good or bad that these twins have done, what he's about to continue talking about, and that's salvation and God's mercy, being received recipients of God's mercy. While they were not yet born, had done nothing, good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand. Not, again, he reiterates, not because of works, but because of him, God, who calls. So we have God's purpose, God's choice. The author saying those things are what's going to stand not human works and it has nothing to do with whether they were good or bad people because if we look at their life we can see that they were both bad people they both had sin verse 12 it was said to her rebecca the older will serve the younger so esau will serve jacob in a sense just as it is written uh, a quote from the prophets later here outside of genesis jacob i love but esau i hated verse 14 what then shall we say? There is no injustice with God, is there? The answer is, may it never be. So it's not a matter of justice. And if you're asking, is this just with God? The answer is, no. And then he goes on to begin to talk about something that's totally separate from justice. Okay? <clears throat> Verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I mercy and I will have compassion on whom I compassion so guys it's not a matter of justice mm -hmm. it's a matter of mercy and compassion yeah. and if you know the definition of mercy and compassion it means that no one deserves it it means unmerited undeserved favor nothing you could do because then it's a reward right if it's based upon your intrinsic worth and value or something about you, then it's no longer grace. And if you turn over to um, <clears throat> Romans 10 verse, I'm sorry, Romans 11 verse 5, these thoughts continue through the whole thing and this it comes up again, Paul's definition of what grace and mercy is, verse 5, in the same way then, talking about God's purpose, his sovereign election, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant of people According to God's, what kind of choice does it say? Gracious. gracious choice. And so here's the definition of grace. Verse 6. But if it is by grace, 
It is no longer on the basis of works. It has nothing to do with humans. Back to Romans 9, verse 16. And so he follows it up with this stated in Romans 9, 16 as well. So then, guys, if the salvation, the mercy, the grace, my purpose, my elective purpose, my choice has nothing to do with justice, has everything to do with grace, and it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs or exerts himself, meaning his actions, his deeds, his work. It has nothing to do with what he wills or what he does. He's trying to make it really clear. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, now he moves on to another temple, the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I, God, I raised you up, Pharaoh. And it was for a purpose, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And the power that God is demonstrating in Pharaoh is the power of his wrath, <clears throat> and his judgment, and his justice. Pharaoh was given birth. For this purpose. It all falls under that big word predestination. And today, the passage will lead us to what a theologians call double predestination. And this is the things that we have to think about today and answer from what the text directs us to look into and ask. So God raised up Pharaoh for this very purpose. He gave him birth into the family that he was born into. He gave him the wisdom that he was. He became the great king above all other kings on the earth at this time. And God raised him up to the powerful position that he was for a very specific purpose. So that he could judge him. And so that his name would be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And that people would fear God and know that God is God. And that he is not to be trifled with. And God gets glory from this. Verse 18. So then, God, he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. And so here's the question to this statement. God has mercy on whomever he mercies. And God, <coughs> specifically here, referring back to the previous verse about Pharaoh being raised up to demonstrate God's wrath and power, Paul says, he hardens, raises up to power for the purpose of judgment and wrath. He hardens whom he wills really difficult. So the human response is verse 19 and Paul is prepared for this. This is the human response. You will say to me then the human is arguing this back against Paul and against God himself. Why does he, God, still find fault? Back to the previous two things. And I believe it's specifically targeted at he hardens whom he wills. If God hardens whom he wills, how can God still find fault with me and my sin? If he's over in control of this. The next thing is, who can resist his will? If I was born and I was raised up, similar to Pharaoh, not to receive grace, but for the very purpose I was given life, was never going to receive anything else but a, a path that would lead to my own destruction. How can God still be at fault with me? And so the question is still back on justice, I believe, ultimately. Is this just? 
hopefully that's where he's still dealing with. Verse 20. The authoritative response from Paul is to the opponents of this idea that God can harden who he wills and have mercy on whom he wills, that he can give birth to a person simply to destroy them or judge them. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? And so it's not okay to argue against God. And God gives Paul gives an authoritative, hmm, no, you're a creature, you don't understand. Kind of lower yourself in your status and your thinking and realize just because you don't understand, it is not good to question like this or to get angry or to reject or to get mad at those who are talking about this or to get mad at God about it. Who are you to answer back to God? And so he levels human beings who would oppose God in this doctrine and he says, you need to lower yourself. And so he goes on, the thing molded will not say to the molder, and so here's this starting of this creatorship. God's the author. God's the originator. God is the primary cause. He's the source for all things in philosophical language. God is the molder. You will not say to him, why, O God, did you make me like this, will it? And referring back to the Pharaoh. The response should not be, if I was destined for wrath, the response should not be back to God, why did you make me like this? And why can you still find fault with me? Who can resist your will if you're the one who gave me birth, directed my path, directed my desires to where I would sin against you and receive judgment? Does not the potter have a right over the clay? This is where we're getting into today. Does not the potter have a right over the clay? So instead of human rights, which is where we all want to be, right? Mm -hmm. Today our culture screams personal rights. I have the right to become a female. And everybody has to pay for that surgery. That's what's happening in the military. There's talk about if somebody wants to be a guy from a girl, People's tax dollars are going to have to pay for that surgery. So human beings, especially in our culture, in America, declare human rights, American Constitution, and all these things. This text is very countercultural for America and human beings in general who want to believe that they are God and that they are in control of their own destiny and their life. And so we get back to the fact that the, God is the molder and God is the potter. He's the creator, he's the author, he's the originator. And it's him who has the right. It's and his rights are more important than the clays. And his right leads to the reality that he has the right to make. He has the right to create in whatsoever way he chooses to for that thing, that clay pot, to arrive at whatever destination God chooses. And it's from the same lump. And I believe some, some commentators believe that the same lump there refers back to talking about Rebecca in the language. That from the same lump of cells, possibly, this detailed, 
God had the right to make one of the twins from coming from that womb to be a receiver of mercy and from the other part of the lump in the womb one on the path to receive judgment, destruction and so one vessel is going to be used for an honorable purpose we're going to see this word means glory salvation blessing and inheritance and other passages here in Romans 8 this whole salvation section in 8 through 11 as a whole and one for common use which means the dishonorable use and so God has a right to make one for an honorable purpose and end and one for a dishonorable purpose and end and so the question would be or not the question but Paul kind of phrases it in a question like here what if God so responding back to the opponent who was still saying, how can God still find fault with me if he's this in control? And if he gave me life and he gave me purpose simply to judge me down the road and never help me get mercy, never choose to give me mercy, what if God, although willing or because willing, <clears throat> to, and here's the answer, in verses 22 and 23. The answer that God gives in Scripture, the most direct one, is that God did this, and he was willing to do this to demonstrate himself in two ways. or Two, two attributes or characteristics of himself, his being, and who he is. God is going to demonstrate his wrath. He's willing to do it this way to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known. And that's on the vessels of common or dishonorable use. God endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. God gave life. This is really difficult. Are you following me? Do you see that it says that, though? Mm -hmm. God is willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, and he endured with much patience vessels of wrath, so he didn't judge them right away. In Pharaoh's life, rather than ending his life as a child, he let sin accumulate through the child's life. And he had a purpose at the end of Pharaoh, at the height of Pharaoh's power, and in his prestige as the king of over all kings on the earth, unchallenged by any other human foe or realm or kingdom. He was going to make his power known. And he let him go on through his whole life, endured with much patience, vessels of wrath, and they're prepared for destruction. But you understand that the author is saying that God gave birth to Pharaoh for this end for destruction and to contrast it to contrast God's wrath he said he did so, he did this he did the wrath and he created other vessels for wrath and destruction so so as to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy and those vessels are the vessels which he prepared beforehand for glory. 
Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Verses 8 and 9, Paul, writing to Timothy, just before he's about to die, he knows he's received a criminal sentence um, for being a gospel minister. It ultimately, Rome's escalation of force against Christians is now in full swing at this point. And it goes back and forth as some of the years go by. But Paul is about to die, and he tells Timothy this in verse 8. Therefore, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Verse 9. Who, God, has saved us and called us with a holy calling, a set-apart calling, a distinct calling. For a holy purpose. It was not according to our works. But it was according to his own purpose and his grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, which means before the world was formed in the eternal counsel of God. Grace was granted to Paul and Timothy before he made anything. He knew them and set them apart to receive grace in Christ. Mm -hmm. So that covers the beforehand. Mm -hmm. The beforehand. In verse 24, even us, whom he also called, this is, this is what's amazing, God in, in Roman, or Paul in Romans, God through Paul in the book of Romans is uniting Jews and Gentiles in a new age, the church age. This is real special. God is now opening up in great droves and numbers this salvation, which wasn't only to a narrow, generally a narrow group of Jews only in the Old Testament, but now it's also in great numbers going to the Gentiles. This is what Paul is dealing with in Romans 9-11 through 11 in general, showing that why is Israel so obstinate? Why are so many Jews not believing the message of being saved and receiving grace? And so all of this is explaining that. Why so many Jews and people, not just to the Jews, but here, because these principles are true for the Jews, us Gentiles have to understand for our fellow Gentiles why they aren't believing. This is an explanation, ultimately, in large, to show us why people don't believe. Does everybody understand that big picture idea? This explains in detail why people are so not turning to God. Because it's up to God. It should change they, everything about how we approach you know, non-believers. You know, it just takes off any kind of sometimes frustration, anger. Why aren't they getting this? You know, it should, it, it should evoke such compassion. Because uh, we don't know the time frame. 
yes. if and when. You know, that's not for us to know. But it should just completely radically change our thought as we approach the non-believer, those who are blind and who fight against us. Brenda brings up a an awesome principle of which this theological text, this is an application, a principal application for the Christian. If these things are true, and you should believe them because they are true, because the Word of God directly states so, you should not have any anger with anybody who even kills you for the name of Jesus. Do you understand that? Mm -hmm. Why do you think Paul could so graciously go to have his head cut off and not cry out injustice against the Romans? Because he's teaching this. Mm -hmm. This is how in control my God is. And so no matter what comes at me, God is in control. God is in control over everything. He's the one who can calm the sea. And he's the one who can say, stay here. I have many people in this city yet to be saved in the book of Acts. You're not going to be kicked out of here. Stay right here. I've got you to do a lot of work here right now. While he was on the cross and he could say, forgive him. This is the attitude that Jesus had. So if you want to look to the primary example in your life, Jesus said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus exemplified to us his knowledge of how blind people are in. And Jesus is God, and, and he knows that he's prepared people for destruction, and Jesus himself is going to enact that destruction himself. But in the emotions of God, he can not enjoy the destruction of the wicked and, and pour that out in emotion. And there are passages that I don't, I don't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. And then at the same time, God says, looking at the large picture, I take pleasure in what I'm doing in the big scheme of things. Ultimately, who I am and my glory is going to be put on display, and for that I can also take pleasure in, my wrath being displayed. Okay, I'll, I'll use Jesus as an example. When Jesus was baptized, we heard the, the voice of the Father come from heaven, and the Holy Spirit was there and descended like a dove. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then Isaiah 53 says that it pleased Yahweh to crush his son. God is pleased in his son, and he's pleased to crush Jesus Christ. How do you deal with those two pleasures in God over the same person? He's pleased with Jesus perfectly, and he is pleased to crush him with the wrath that believers deserve. Because his justice is being put on display in Jesus Christ. The justice that we deserve as believers who are receiving mercy. So, I'm done. Time for a few small questions. Could you sure. answer something that's plagued me for a long time? Because I, I affirm all of this. I have a friend who's kind of walked away from the church coming from a Wesleyan background who has wrestled with the notion of how do we say and is it falsely said Jesus loves everyone when this is true and I don't I get what they're asking I don't have an answer I don't know how exactly to direct them. you could go through scripture on these kinds of things that it is for his pleasure is good 
You can point those out. Is it true to say that God loves everyone? I know that his grace is effective for all, um, that it can happen, salvation can happen for all, but it doesn't. So it, it was just something that I thought just stood out to me years ago when she said, how can we say Jesus loves you <laughs> to the unbeliever? And we don't know if he does. That was her question. And it just kind of stuck with me. And I, yep. is it a valid question? I, I don't even know. I don't know if that's a fair question. Uh, yes and no. That's what so I kind of feel like. So you have to work like. out the details of what, <laughs> yeah. like we talked about definitions. What does love mean yeah. to you in this context? That's probably a good way to put Tack it. Tack it out. And so as you can see, studying theology, mm -hmm. meaning every word of every verse of every scripture in the Bible, is difficult to synthesize and harmonize them all. Mm -hmm. Yay? Mm -hmm. Or, no, I've got this figured out totally. <laughs> um, Romans 2.5 real quick. A little bit of opening up some of that idea of a general <clears throat> all-inclusive love. So we'll talk about, this is a, a common love or it's what theologians will call common grace. Mm -hmm. And that can be understood from us in a human context as love if you show kindness to somebody, right? You show an act of <clears throat> compassion. We could say, oh, that's loving, right? So then we take the word loving and then we turn it into every passage where God says he loves people, specifically meaning the elect, as if everybody gets that same love to the end purpose. Romans 2, 5. We'll start in verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself. And so this is talking about God having general kindness and a tolerance and a, a long-suffering type of patience, meaning he's holding back the war and the wrath that you deserve immediately. It, would you think that that's loving? So say you had two neighbors, and you know that one neighbor hated the other neighbor and was very mean, but the other one was like, I'm going to try to be as nice as I can. I don't like this person either. But I'm showing acts of tolerance, patience, and you know what? I'm going to try to change their view of me. I'm going to try to do some nice things to them. So I'm going to sprinkle their lawn for them when they're gone and do some nice things for them. Okay? God feeds everybody in the world. Mm -hmm. This is what that's talking about. Mm -hmm. There's a verse in Acts where Paul uses that illustration. God has shown his kindness and providence for many people who aren't on the path for election. He still shows a general love for all people that he makes. He shows a lot of common grace to a lot of people. He shows a lot of general love. He gives people joy. He gives people marriage, children, happiness, laughter, good-tasting food. How many of you have like had emotions of sensation and like, that's really nice? Do you understand that you don't deserve that? that you deserve to be destroyed right now every moment. You don't deserve to taste another good meal. But in Christ Jesus, God has decided to not only give you mercy, but to give you grace, which is an inheritance and a blessing far beyond you could possibly imagine. And he paid for that. I hope that helps begin to build some of that direction. Mm -hmm. There is more to that. Mm -hmm. I want you all to know, if you didn't read the email, I opened up 
little bit of my own life story regarding this section. I used to be a vicious opponent of this teaching. In the, about the first two years where I was saved by God. So this, this type of thing came up. I actually went to Moody Bible Institute and sat in on a guest lecture while my sister was attending a, a theologian's class there. And I sat in as a guest in his lecture. And he talked about his own children. And he's like, ultimately, it is up to God. And I thought that was just a horrible thing for him to say. And I just reacted to it. And I went on a tirade to blow this thing out of the water. <laughs> Read scriptural search I could think of. And it was in, uh, eventually, as the Lord was gracious to me, not killing me for my insolence to the plain Amen. teaching of scripture and what the words just say. When my wife and I were in northern Sudan, and she received an amoeba in her body that kills people in, within two weeks. She had extreme diarrhea and was about to die. Sorry, Elizabeth, this is on video. Um, <clears throat> thankfully, because of the century that we were born on, we could walk down to a little clinic in northern Khartoum, uh, Sudan. We were issued the wrong um, medication, actually, and we through, through research and a doctor called back to the United States, found out the right medication. I went and asked the pharmacist to give us this medication. She'd already had this for a week, and she was about to die, basically. And it was during this time, in this extreme case that happened to me over there, so I was like broken, feeling like I was gonna be one of the missionary guys that's wife dies on the field, and I just like broken the rest of my life. That does happen to people. So I decided it not to be me on that day or to this day yet. I was reading Daniel 4, and then bam, it hit me that I was wrong about all of this, and that God was right. And so I can be very gracious because I was on the other side of the fence, and I was a vicious, harsh opponent, and I was angry. So if you're angry about this, I get it. I was, too. <clears throat> if this makes you question God and get angry at God that he would do such a thing, I understand. I've been there. Nevertheless, I'll stand up here and try to graciously point you to the reality of what the text says. And I'll try to help you through it as best I can. And by God's grace, I hope I'll never be angry at people. That I can move forward like Paul and like Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. With this idea that God is totally sovereign. And that I can rest in whatever comes to pass any moment anything every little detail in your life God orchestrates and God is over and you can rest in him glory in God praise his name call him Lord and act like he is Lord more and more each day I think too I have a comment and I think this is one of a lot of teachings, but this is one teaching, and I think it, that that it's hard for us that it because it departs from the way we would be. You know, this departs. We think of God as a good, good father, and I mean, my husband would would never allow one of his kids to not. And, you know, it just departs from the, what we think, and that's why it's hard. 
it's really hard for us to swallow God's answer here in verses 22 and 23, right? He literally says, I did. I was willing to do this to demonstrate my own wrath. And to make known my power unto destruction. But God is right, and God is just, and God is good. We might not understand God's goodness and the perfect counsel of his will. But I pray that everyone here will get more to a point where Jonathan Edwards, and Pastor Chance sent me this email months back. Jonathan Edwards, the greatest American theologian in the 1700s, he wrestled with this. His father was a reverend and a minister, and he actually expressed great disbelief in God because of this passage. And then one day, the Spirit simply illuminated him, and he believes that this was the moment of his salvation, actually, is when he accepted that grace was totally dependent upon God. It had nothing to do with human beings whatsoever. And he marveled at God, and it was, he says, it was only the Spirit which gave me peace over this passage. And so it's the Spirit's power which helped Jonathan Edwards trust by our own human power, we might not be able to accept what this teaches. But I pray by the power of the Spirit, we will all be able to glorify God and accept what He says. Time. Lord, thank you for this time together. Um, please bless everyone here. Give them understanding. Help them in their growth to love Jesus Christ more and to obey Him. God, help everyone to understand here that they can rest in you and the power of your, your grace and your sovereignty and that they can trust you in whatever situation arises in their life or whatever opponent comes to them that they can be having an inner tranquility and peace because they know that you are, the, you are Lord of the universe you're in charge of every man that every man's heart is in your hands, and you turn it whichever way you will. So God, help us to grow as a church. Help us to be loving and kind, to proclaim your truth to the nations, and be about your business, our master, our king, our lord. Amen. Amen. Amen.